Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we discuss the importance of the science and practice of heart-brain coherence. Chronic stress and related disorders now account for most of the visits to the offices of family physicians. We also know that chronic stress will exacerbate or worsen any physical or mental disorder, especially chronic pain. The past couple of years have been particularly brutal with regard to personal and societal stress levels, the pandemic, social polarization, a financial crunch, and the ambush of multiple seemingly insoluble global crises constantly assault our attention with much of the media tending to rile and inflame rather than inform, wreaking mental havoc on an unprecedented scale. In fact, we're almost at the stage where a politician in office over a century ago during the last years of Tsarist Russia once gloomily muttered, and I quote here, it is now becoming impossible to predict the past. On the brighter side, so what are we gonna do about it? As nearly always, we should start with what we can change. While stress may initially seem to sweep in from the outside, like a bolt of lightning, it immediately becomes interactive as we not only buy into it, but later we tend to fuel and expand the problem, perhaps eventually even helping to drive it. Taking back our personal control by finding and arriving at a more peaceful place not only alleviates or uh, prevents this contagion or attenuates it, but enables our physiology and thought architecture to become more resistant to its devastating effects, all the while increasing our resilience. One way to achieve this is through biofeedback, a method whereby we can, through technology, learn to control some of our body's functions and more importantly, our response to stresses. Who better to educate us further on the subject than Dr. Roland McCready, Director of Research at the HeartMath Institute. A brief bio follows. Roland McCready, PhD, is the Director of Research at the HeartMath Research Center at the HeartMath Institute, a psychophysiologist. His research interests include the physiology of emotion, heart-brain communication, and the global interconnectivity between people and the Earth's energetic systems. Findings from this research have been applied to the development of many educational programs and technologies to optimize individual and organizational health, performance, and quality of life. Dr. McCready has acted as principal investigator in numerous studies examining the effect of emotions on heart-brain interactions and on autonomic, cardiovascular, hormonal, and immune system function, and studies to determine the benefits of self-regulation-focused interventions and heart rhythm coherence feedback in diverse organizational, educational, and clinical populations. He has been featured in a number of documentary films, such as I Am, The Truth, 
The Joy of Sox movie, and Sox for the record is spelled S-O-X, as in Boston Red Sox. The Power of the Heart, Solar Revolution, The One Field, Deconstructing Sentience, and The Living Matrix, among many others. Dr. McCready, I am most delighted to welcome you to HealthScape. Well, thank you, Trevor. It's a, it's a great uh, pleasure and honor to be here. Well, thank you. Um, starting right off the bat, um, could you please give our listeners uh, the definition of biofeedback that you most favor? Because one sees several <clears throat> definitions. Well, I like to keep things simple. So biofeedback um, is really any time that you're feeding back signals from our body uh, that gives us a, a, an indication of what's going on. So the simplest form of biofeedback, from my perspective, is you looking in a mirror and smiling or, or mm-hmm. practicing facial expressions because you're, you're getting feedback from the body. Uh, of course, we can get a lot more complicated, but, uh, you know, with technology measuring various types of body rhythms and signals, but, but hopefully that gives a, an idea of what biofeedback is. Yes, and yes, it has to keep it simple. I, I, I agree. Um, now... In your view, what is biofeedback most often used for, main, main function, if, if that's answerable even? And in well, what other context may it be used? Sure. I think a little history is, is good here because the original uh, development of biofeedback, <clears throat> even the beginning area or, or arena of biofeedback, it was really, and it's still to this day, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, used in the context of helping people learn that they they can and how to self-regulate. Now, in other words, we can self-regulate different aspects of our body, uh, the way uh, you know, like blood flow to a certain part of the body, for example, or a lot of biofeedback was used, especially back in the 60s and 70s, to help people learn that they could uh, train and, and uh, change their brain waves, for example. Um, a lot of it during that era got forgotten that it was really about self-regulating was the, the whole reason for it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, more recently, uh, feedback from what's called heart rate variability has really exploded uh, for a lot of important reasons. Uh, the type of feedback that it gives us is much more relevant for us being able to um, handle stress, for example, in daily life and emotional reactions and uh, these types of things. Right. So it's, it's, it's very much a needed uh, service and um, discipline or practice, uh, certainly in, in these last few years. Uh, now, there's this great focus on, as you've mentioned, heart rate variability. What exactly do we mean by this? And, and why is it such a good thing? Yeah, that's a, a great question, um, Dr. Campbell. The, most people know what heart rate is, right? Which is really simply how many times did our heart beat in a minute? Yes. Uh, you know, so like we'd say, you know, our, my heart rate's 60 beats per minute or 75 or whatever, depending upon activity levels and so on. But in reality, <clears throat> in a healthy person, our heart rate is actually changing with each and every heartbeat. Right. So, and that's what's called heart rate variability. Now, that's a lot harder to measure. Uh, so, in just counting how many, you know, heartbeats there were, we have to now accurately measure the time interval between each consecutive pair of heartbeats. Yes. And uh, so that gives us a series of numbers, you know, of time. And that's what heart rate variability is. Now, why is it a good thing? Um, well, first of all, the amount of this naturally occurring heart rate variability we have 
is very much related with the aging process. We have a lot more of it when we're young, and it gets less and less as we age. Now, <clears throat> so it's kind of a, a, one of the best-known biomarkers right now of aging. In fact, we can measure here in our laboratory someone's uh, heart rate variability, how much of it they have, and typically tell within about two years of how old they are, you know, chronologically speaking. Now, that's if they're on a, a normal, healthy trajectory. But if we have a lot of stress in their life, a lot of chronic stress, accumulated stress, you know, we're starting a new company and burning the candle at both ends or going through, a, you know, a relationship issues that create especially a lot of emotional turmoil and stress. Right. That leads to lower amounts of HRV than we should have for our age. And that is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that is associated, low HRV or heart rate variability is associated with every major, not only every chronic disease uh, that we know of, but it's also one of the strongest predictors of the future health problems. Right. And, so uh, it, it has parallels almost in uh, um, psychological uh, uh, decreasing flexibility and, and motor uh, flexibility, uh, you know, with... As we age, we, we become less flexible in terms of, of, of our movement as well as our tolerance, you know, being upset by younger generations or, or something like that. So this, that seems to be mirroring almost that, right? That, that's a great comment, and I'm, I'm actually glad you said it. Uh, that's absolutely right. In fact, one of the hallmarks from my perspective is of aging is lack of flexibility. I mean, not just physically, of course. You know, I'm getting to be an older guy myself. And I, I don't have the physical flexibility I once did, um, right. you know, and endurance. But it, um, and I've watched my own parents go through this, and many others as we age. But especially our mental and emotional flexibility gets less. It's the same stories over and over. Mm -hmm. Less tolerant to other people's perspectives, or like you said, new new types of music, and yes. and so on. Um, we get much more rigid. Um, so that's not a good thing. So we're now we're not able to adapt to the changing situations that go on. And, and that's especially important now, as you mentioned in your opening. Uh, we're in um, a lot of rapid change in mm -hmm. about every domain of, of human social and, um, well, especially social uh, levels, but in technology and so on. You know, uh, Dr. Ron, as he was, uh, Dr. McCready, as you were speaking, I, I had a sphinx, I had a sphinx cat who died recently, but you know, when he wants to pounce, he kind of sort of moves slightly as though he's timing it. And I was wondering, this heart rate variability, uh, it almost suggests something intrinsically. Um, what we see often, it's it's when you're ready for action, there's even movement going on in preparation for the leap or for the or for the, the actual movement. It's not as though one is particular, uh, at rest and so forth. I don't know if that's got parallels. It's just a, a thought that's kind of called intrusion almost. But it's interesting to me that you would think, well, you don't want to move if you want to catch an insect or something, because um, you know, they've got variable number of eyes, some of them. Um, uh, or spiders. Yeah, no, it's very anyway. relevant. It's very relevant. Yes. Um, you know, for any kind of biological system that, that, you know, we tend to think of steady state, we hear these terms, and it's just never true. No, sure, sure. A moving system is much more flexible and adaptable. I mean, if you watch a tennis player, it's another example. You know, when they're ready to get a serve, they're always kind of moving back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Because to then move, you know, to take action is much easier than coming from a total stationary or static state. 
Oh, so that one was at least uh, uh, had some value, that intrusion. <laughs> yeah, no, it absolutely did. And it's the same way in terms of our physiology. You know, let me give you another example, um, yes. Dr. Campbell. The reason that the heart, well, if you look at our heart rate variability, it's always, that's what creates the heart rhythm. So yes. if the time between each pair of heartbeats was the same, there would be no heart rhythm. It'd be like a metrodome no, uh, and, and no flexibility. So for example, just when you're, somebody's sitting down, you know, when we just, just the act of standing up, the heart has to change within that heartbeat to the next heartbeat dramatically to um, both in blood pressure and heart rate so that we pump enough blood to the brain so we don't pass out. Right. So right. Those, those are the kind of flexibilities we don't want to lose. Another excellent example, yes. Now, central to the discipline is the, this uh, brain duality that the heart seems to have its own brain which connects to our intracranial. It's easier for me to just call it our head brains and our heart brains, if that's permissible. Absolutely. I was very interested to learn that most of the neural traffic or the information going up the uh, nerve, cell, uh, nerve fibers, about nine-tenths, is afferent, meaning that it's traveling from the heart to the brain rather than the outer, other way around. Um, to a businessman, that might suggest a senior partner I don't know, I'm just saying. The other interesting piece was that these pathways are connected to the most primitive part of the brain. You know, the, uh, for our listeners, it's the archibrain, paleo brain, and then the neocortex and neobrain, which is the latest uh, iteration, if you like, development. <clears throat> now, the interesting thing was that these pathways are connected, as I say, to the most primitive part of the brain, the so-called archibrain. Does this imply that the early development of the head brain was heavily influenced, possibly even determined by the heart brain? Okay, that you opened a big can of worms there. Oh. Um, that question. No, it's a good. It's a good question. Don't don't get me wrong. We we could spend a whole okay. interview just on that. Okay. But let me let me go back to very early development when we're in the fetus. Um, yes. In the fetal state, the heart is the first organ to develop. It, it develops a number yes. of weeks before the brain even starts to develop. You know, the, the first heartbeat can be detected. Yes. And the neural tube, as it's called, of the neural cells begin in the heart in the, heart in the fetus and actually move up what's called the neural uh, tube to become the brain. Right. So at a very fundamental level, the, the neural structures start in the heart. That's now... Now, once we're fully developed, right, and, and so on, that, that a lot of people find what you just said. It's absolutely correct that, uh, I mean, I, I would say it this way a lot of times, that the heart sends far more information, the heart brain, to the brain in our head than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Now, this idea of a heart brain, this is not, not a new idea, but the, the fact that the heart sends more neural traffic to the brain than the other way around, this is not some new discovery. This has been known since the late 1800s. You know, a lot of the original, this is a basic anatomy. Right. Uh, so this has been known for a long time, just forgotten and rediscovered and forgotten and rediscovered. Mm -hmm. You know how science tends to go there. Um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of important uh, aspects of this. Now, it, the, you mentioned that these neural connections from the heart come up to the, I would call it the brainstem and the, the neural right. centers for cardiovascular control and respiratory integration and these things. But these afferent or ascending neural connections, that's the first place they, they come to. But from there, one synapse away, basically, in a lot of cases, there are, are strong and neural pathways to every major brain center all the way up to the frontal cortex. Right. 
So these cardiovascular uh, neural communication with the brain have a lot of important effects. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just mention uh, one here. I don't want to ramble on too long here, but going back to the 1970s, and this is a time in the history of psychophysiology that, you know, people were were basically thinking that, that it was all about the brain and the body was just there to carry the head around, more or less. You know, and that, you know, metaphorically, if you could cut, the, you know, have the head off and you know, give it the blood flow and oxygen, it'd be just fine. Uh, nobody believes that anymore. It's, you know, kind of considered nonsense. There's so much we now know that the brain is really interpreting the signals from the body and, and giving meaning to those and labeling them. Mm-hmm. But two terms were introduced in the 1970s that actually was the beginning of this paradigm shift um, where the... In fact, going back to some of the early researchers of that era, they were literally writing about the heart acting as though it had a mind of its own. Right. Because, because the brain would be saying to do one thing, but the heart would do something completely different. Uh, now, they didn't know about what's technically called the intrinsic cardiac nervous system or the heart-brain at that time. That came a bit later uh, through the field that's technically called neurocardiology, uh, which are many research groups now that are in neurocardiology. But the terms I wanted to mention here that were were given back then to describe the effects that the activity or, or the quality of the neural signals from the heart to the brain was having on, on our brain function. One was called cortical inhibition. Cortex, of course, being the top mm-hmm. layers of the brain, the part of our brain we get paid to go to work for, right? You know, you know, okay. reasoning, thinking, yes. supposedly. Um, inhibition. So in other words, if the heart rhythm was in a certain pattern, which we now know is, a, so is the kind of pattern we have uh, that the, the heart's beating out. If you can kind of think of it like a complex Morse code, you know, sending information to the brain, that that's the, this incoherent, as we call it, rhythm is the rhythm that we have when we're feeling things like frustration or mm-hmm. impatience or anxiety and so on. That, this incoherence that it creates in the heart rhythm literally inhibits cortical function. So that was the term they gave was cortical inhibition. The other term is called cortical facilitation. So when the heart rhythm is in a, a much smoother ordered rhythm over time, uh, that, in, that uh, f- facilitates the higher reasoning and thinking, our ability to self-regulate, um, which we now know all the mechanisms. It took a lot of labs, including ours, a lot of years to, to sort all this out of how this all works, but it, it's really pretty simple at the end of the day. Um, which we can go into if you want to or not, but uh. yeah, no, no, that that's that's good. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, I, I I also remember the Aki was the very the olfactory smell, right? And you kind of, one kind of wonders whether a certain reaction in the heart of danger became associated with certain smells, but I guess wow. that's that's just uh, getting off topic. Well, um, it's relevant, but it, it would probably take too time, too much time to really yeah. spell that out. But it, but it's very relevant for today's world how that actually works. Oh, okay. Well, I need to read up more on that for sure. Um, please tell us about your place of work, the Heart Math Institute, and specifically the Research Institute. You mean where we're located, uh, Dr. Campbell? Uh, yeah, just the the, the um, scope of the work or, or the main the main focus. Um, uh, sure, we're going to cover that as well. But I mean, uh, uh, just a bit about how it originated, perhaps. 
Uh, okay, well, we the, the HeartMath Institute originated from the, the work of uh, a man named Doc, Doc Childry. And um, <clears throat> so in his uh, previous work and research on, on, his, uh, on himself, really, and exploring many different type of uh, systems that are out there for, you know, personal growth and, and so on. And uh, he studied very deeply many, many systems. And so many of them were talking about the heart, you know, as, as um, a source of wisdom and intelligence and, uh, and courage and so on. You know, it's in our language so much, you know, like, you man, just put your heart into it or ask your heart. It always knows the right answer and, and mm-hmm. so on. So he, he took that seriously. Um, after reading all the, the, these systems and really kind of dug in deep mm-hmm. and uh, found in his own growth um, that uh, there really was something to that. So um, I met him, well, this would be in the late 80s, actually. And um, I won't go into that whole story. It was uh, kind of um, synchronicity. And right. tried some of the ideas. And, and I'd been a meditator. You know, I, I, by the way, I'm a, at that time, I, I was a communication engineer originally. I used to work for Motorola and then started my own company, and a high-tech electrostatics problem-solving company. And it, But it, meanwhile, I'd been a meditator and actually went off and got a degree in consciousness studies just kind of on the side for because of my own personal interests and so on. Because um, I was never really satisfied with our explanations of what electromagnetism is and, and right. so on at a deeper level. But anyway, I, I tried some of the, the practices that he um, suggested in my own life, uh, you know, about taking the heart as a source of intelligence a little more seriously. And I can honestly tell you that I made more personal growth and capacity to self-regulate and, and really manage my emotions and than I'd had in probably 15 years of meditation type practices. Not, not that I didn't get a lot out of meditation, I did, but, but right. there was a whole new dimension or domain that uh, was uncovered once I started. Excellent. So you've, you've lived the, the discipline from an early stage, right? A- indeed, yeah. So I basically sold my interest in that company that I founded and co-founded and, and uh, helped uh, Doc Childry uh, launch the Institute of HeartMath. Thank you for that. Um, what is the heart-brain what is heart-brain coherence? Okay, so um, we've talked already about how the heart uh, is sending lots of neural information up, upstairs to the, the brain in our head, and that that right. information affects, well, literally it, it affects, uh, well, let me just back up and go a little bit into the mechanism that underlies cortical inhibition and cortical facilitation that I talked about. Right. What, what we now know is that there's another part in the brain at the very core of the brain called the thalamus, has many, many jobs and roles, but one of them, a really important one, is that it's the area of the brain that synchronizes the electrical activity of the entire brain. And it does that through these big uh, cortical loops uh, called thalamic cortical loops and so on. And for the brain, for us to even be conscious and awake, the brain has to be able to synchronize its own electrical activity. In fact, when you're in a, uh, a head injury or a closed head injury or something and, and whiplash, that kind of thing, it's those neural circuits that they get damaged is when people go into a coma simply because the brain can't synchronize itself. So it's fundamentally important for being awake, you know, uh, even awake and conscious. But more importantly, what we're now coming to understand, and this is kind of a new whole way that's going on in my field of psychophysiology and neuroscience, is that it's really the synchronization of the neural systems and structures 
that underlie performance, our ability to think well, perform well, uh, self-regulate and manage ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this is where the heart has a major role because when we're in that incoherent state, there's a direct neural pathway from the heart to the thalamus that causes the, that interferes with the thalamus's ability to synchronize global neural activity. Yeah. Hence the term cortical inhibition. Right. On the other hand, when we're in that heart coherent, heart rhythm coherent state, it actually facilitates and global synchronization above and beyond our normal walking around state. So we perform better. And this is where the, the biofeedback comes in because it gives us a, a real-time feedback of our heart rhythm. And when we're in that heart coherent state, by, we have to be in, a, in a, a higher degree of neural synchronization. Now here's uh, to measure that quite literally. <clears throat> when we look at different brain waves that uh, most people are probably heard of or familiar with, like alpha, beta, theta, so on, all of those various brain waves to various degrees are synchronized to the heart, and just naturally. Now, when we get into that heart coherent state, which the biofeedback helps us do, the synchronized act, the neural activity in our brain, these various brain rhythms, become more or significantly more in sync with the cardiac cycle or the heart rhythms. And this is what really underlies. That's what literally we mean by heart-brain synchronization. And when we're in that state, we be, we think better. We are mm-hmm. able to clear the brain fog, right? Um, and you know, kind of move away from uh, so much of the stressful feelings of impatience and frustration and overwhelm and so on uh, into a state of more inner ease and calm and uh, clearer thinking, more, more ability to focus and, and many other, you know, the list goes on. It's almost like timing uh, on a machine, right? They're setting the timing so that it works efficiently. Yeah, you could think of a car, you know. Yes, that's, um, you, that's you, what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, you know, the timing has to be right for the spark plugs to fire to, when the piston's at the top of the cylinder and so on. And and if the timing's off, our car runs really crappy. Right. Sorry. Um, the time for a brief commercial break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor, Trevor Campbell, talking to Dr. Roland McCready about the science and practice of heart-brain coherence. We'll be right back. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also The Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back to Healthscape. You're listening to your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, interviewing Dr. Roland McCready. Okay. Um, this, as we know, Japan has many ancient and very interesting, complex traditions. One of which is ikigai, iki meaning life and gai value. Um, how to figure out one's life purpose by looking at certain um, concepts such as vocation, profession, but also passion and mission. Now, this seems to me to suggest or to allude a a more ancient appreciation and probably association uh, of a heart-brain connection or a heart-brain duality, for want of a better term. Would you agree with this, Dr. McCready? Uh, I would. And in fact, there are many other similar um, ancient traditions uh, other than the, the, it's a great one that you just talked about in Japanese. Um, but it, if you know, a fellow that used to work here that headed our education division at the HeartMath Institute yeah. uh, was a, he retired from UCLA. The man literally has four PhDs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very smart guy. And one of his passions or, or hobbies, you could say, uh, was the study of the world of world religions. And mm-hmm. he actually wrote a paper, I've got to track that down, but where he made the point that the most common or the common characteristic, uh, the most fundamental common characteristic across all of the great world's philosophies and religions is the idea of the heart as the interface to our higher capacities, our higher, right. our larger self. And that, that's why we have so many references in our language to this. Yes. Um, so this is, um, so our research has really just been scientifically confirming uh, many aspects of what has been, I think, known intuitively uh, mm-hmm. by different cultures that didn't know anything about each other around the world for well, literally thousands of years. Yeah, and it comes up in our language as well. We speak about people who have a magnetic personality. Uh, it's obvious that certain people, uh, dogs like them or cats like them or what are they attracted? Mm-hmm. You know, it, the attraction's obvious where they'll bypass certain people that come and visit you but fixate on on others and it's consistent so uh, there seems to be you know a lot in our every day that we've taken for granted basically over the years now what sort of role may biofeedback play in learning and gaining confidence in enteroception or the perception of one's sensations from inside the body uh, in my view, this is going to play a huge role in chronic pain treatment in the future, possibly allowing patients to focus way less on their own pain and on something more compelling and more positive. That's my personal view. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Wow. Um, so you talked about interception, and that, that's a scientific word for uh, how the bodies within our body, we have many, many sensory systems that sense things, right. pain, for example, being one of those. Um, excuse me, but many others as well, like one of the common thing, common tests for uh, interceptive awareness or self-awareness, body self-awareness, is how one's ability to feel in their own heartbeat accurately. Uh, it's actually a clinical test. So it's really important. And when we talk about heart rate variability biofeedback, we're really talking about how that is allowing us to shift our um, 
heart rhythms into this coherent state. And I, I don't know if I really said this clearly earlier or not, but that is very much reflective of our emotional state. In, in fact, yes. you know, um, more recent studies have shown that just by looking at the pattern of the heart rhythm, you can detect a person's emotional state with about 75% accuracy without any other measure. And that, that's really phenomenal in, in, uh, from this perspective. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the pattern being sent up to the brain, which it's interpreting. You know, I think that's a lot of reason why most people don't, when they propose or they're falling in love with someone, we don't say, I love you with all my head or all my brain. We right. almost always put our hand on our heart, right? We, we know that yeah. there's something that, that, about that. Now, when we're in that uh, hard, coherent state, we've talked a lot about how it's sending all this information up to the brain. Now, in the chronic pain or the pain context, some of these, uh, when we're in that rhythm, rhythmic state of coherence, that's actually increasing the uh, what's called vagal afferent traffic, to give it a science word. But it just means we're sending more uh, neural up through our vagus, information up through the vagus nerves <clears throat> to the brain. And some of those nerves actually don't go all the way up into the brainstem. They actually turn and go down into the spinal column. And what they do is they inhibit the pain path, the spinal, what are called the thalamic spinal pain tracts. Mm -hmm. So when we're in this more coherent state, which we naturally evoke when we feel good, when we're feeling things like kindness, appreciation, you know, gratitude, forgiveness, we're naturally in that rhythm. So this, this... is literally inhibiting the pain pathways. Right, so we're now starting to, and this is through a lot of the neurocardiology work, understanding mm-hmm. the mechanism for things that have been known uh, for a long time in terms of, you know, grandma's wisdom, I like to call it sometimes. Right, right. The, the other thing about chronic pain, and I mentioned this because a, a, a lot of our listeners are either interested in chronic pain or have it themselves, is in a multidisciplinary pain management program, um, Patients are usually exposed to biofeedback. Some take to it like a duck to water. And the ones who don't persist, I feel give up too easily because when you when you deal with people with chronic pain, they often talk about their life being out of control, out of control. And I think there's a very good way to get back some of that control to see that there is stuff, uh, there, there's a lot that one still has as a as a foundation for for trying out the other self-help therapies so um i've always tried to promote it as much as i can but of course in a in a chronic pain program it's a very full program and um you know there's so much time allocated or only so much and they move on to something else but uh, my own feeling has always been that uh if if one does it properly the benefits are potentially enormous. I, I would absolutely agree with that. Because, you know, when, when we feel out of control, as you say, Dr. Campbell, that's another way of saying that is we've lost or don't or have never developed really adequate mm-hmm. self-regulatory capacity. Yes. Because uh, we that is the one thing, no matter what is happening in, out externally in the world, you know, the chaos that's going on, the news, whatever, um, the one thing that we always have control over, or the only thing we really have control over, is really our responses to the, the, the external environment mm-hmm. and how we feel about it and, and our emotional responses. But most people haven't been taught how to do that. No. And no. They, they lack those skills simply because it, it wasn't taught in school. And, 
and it was hand what you know a lot of the way we go about it was handed down from our parents and peers and so on and who which was handed down from their parents and so on um, right. and that's really why heart math exists because it's uh, really heart math is a a system and a set of simple uh, and by design tools and techniques that allow people to really start taking charge of their emotional diet and the way in our reactions and and we can talk a, we can go way in depth in the neurophysiology and the heart brain but uh, people don't need to know all that science. They just no. need to know, here's the techniques and here's how you do yes. it. And having the biofeedback devices can be really helpful because that gives us the guidance, kind of like a GPS. Am I really making that shift into that, that state that's going to have all these benefits? Yes, and I agree. And I, the, often the objection would be, I don't really understand how this works. I said we routinely use advanced kitchen appliances of which we have almost zero understanding but we still can use it there's still the utility we don't have to understand the electronics behind yeah, or, or or a cell phone i yeah, mean exactly. how complex oh, they are you know perfect um exactly it's yeah exact example so i i've always had um you know try to encourage people but one can only um you know, when, when timing is everything when treating chronic pain. Um, I am personally very interested in the so-called sixth sense. Um, as and, and I've always felt it's anything but mystical, like intuition. I mean, I think it was Stenthal who said that um, there's nothing mystical about intuition. It is merely the basis of intuition is self-awareness. And how we measure the incoming pulse, I'm, I'm elaborating, he didn't say all of this. We can, we can predict something, a, a dynamic, by the effect it has on our literal psychic skin, skin as it hits us. And to me, when I first read that, it wasn't at all, uh, I remember a answer of my brother was at college, he's an engineer, he had a very short descriptor for that kind of reasoning, but it made sense to me as, you know, as this is it. If one is self-aware and one knows how things affect oneself, then something coming in, you learn to read more about it than other people may be gleaning. That's all I'm suggesting. So I don't feel it's a depreciation of complex inexplicable. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an appreciation of complex inexplicable patterns at a subliminal or, or less than conscious level. And um, I, I even have, you know, because this is something that's stickable, not because I remember it, but because it won't let go of me. Uh, one can speculate that in the age that predated language where conflict resolution was often, it often involved a blunt instrument, it was probably an invaluable resource. You know, don't go into that cave. I mean, this is conjecture, I admit, but um, we do know from psychiatry and cognitive behavioral therapy that our thinking influences our moods and vice versa. But the no neuronal traffic direction uh, in the, from the heart to the brain suggested something perhaps chemical acting immediately on the heart, later informing the, the brain, the head brain. So the first neurological messages or messaging, nervous, central nervous system messaging, was probably centered on the usual suspects, such as danger, food, and mating opportunities. And it leaves me with this thing, which, you know, um, 
this idea that our emotions or did they evolve somehow as a cluster of microcognitions that fuse together pre-language? Because I know when I think about something now, I do ponder on it, I reflect on it, but I translate it into language in my head. I don't speak it out to myself. I might write it down to formulate something, but um, is there anything in this or should we move on to the next question? Um, yeah, you covered a lot there. Let, let me just address intuition, if I may, because that, that's actually an area we've done a number of uh, very rigorous controlled uh, research studies around. And we got into this because so as people were practicing the heart math techniques and getting more coherent, uh, what we were hearing, and still to this day, one of the most common things we hear that, my God, my intuition is on steroids. You know, it's like mm -hmm. this is radically different. Right. And then the second thing is and synchronicities. You know, they become a way of life. You know, I just yeah. expect them now. So that's what uh, got us into the actual lab-based research around this. To, uh, let me start by saying, from my perspective and what our research and, uh, and many others um, suggest, that there are really three types of intuition. Okay. Uh, so implicit knowledge would be the first type, and that's the one that is uh, most researched in academic centers and, and so on. And um, so this is the type of intuition that has to do with where we might have learned something and forgot we learned it or didn't even know we were learning it. And it's just stored away in, in what's called the implicit memory or the un that means that we don't have conscious access to it. Okay. So um, we see something in the here and the now and the brain is doing pattern recognition and saying, oh, yes, I know how to solve this problem or, or deal with this issue. Now, a great example of this type of uh, implicit type of intuition uh, is also kind of gives rise to what a lot of people will call expert learning, but what really what underlies it. There are many examples, but a common one is a nurse um, who walks into a patient's room, a nurse who's been around, right? She's been, been on the job and, you know, right. for a while and walks in and, and says, oh, oh, this patient's going to code here in the next few minutes. And a new nurse standing next to her goes, what? Well, how do you know that? And, you know, I don't know. I just know it. Right. So yeah. her, her brain has, uh, a format over over past associations with something about that she's seen or detecting. And so, I mean, I could go on and on, but that's the one type and it's a really important type of intuition. And it's what, because right. um, it's really about the brain and the, the past stored memories that are unconscious right, right. that we're pattern matching to it. So it's safe to research in academic circles and yes. what almost all the books on intuition talk about that are out there. Like Blank was a famous one a few years ago and so on. It's all That's based right. on these implicit processes. Gladwell's book, right? All right. The second type I call energetic sensitivity. Now, okay. this, is, this is our nervous system, brain and nervous system's capacity to detect and respond to very real signals from the environment. Um, you've ever, in fact, there's a couple studies that even show we, that this is a real capacity if you ever feel like somebody's staring at you and you turn around and sure enough, they are. Yes. Yes. Empathy is in this category because uh, one, th one thing we didn't talk about, I'll just briefly mention here, when the heart beats, it radiates a measurable magnetic field, quite a few feet external from the body that mm -hmm. we can measure. And we can see that that field is carrying information about our emotional state. Uh, we can literally tell what somebody's feeling by measuring the magnetic field and the information being carried by it. Very much like we're, so we're broadcasting our emotions external to the body. And other people's nervous systems can detect those signals. 
and tell what we're feeling if they're sensitive enough and tuned into it and paying attention. And other examples, there are people who can uh, feel earthquakes coming. We now know that we can measure changes in the Earth's magnetic field prior to earthquakes. And and there's absolutely no question that our physiology is sensitive to uh, magnetic fields, like Earth-scale magnetic fields. That's not a question anymore. We are. Uh, So Mm -hmm. then the third type I call non-local intuition. Now, these are, I think, more what you were talking about, Dr. Campbell. These are, are a lot of what you were talking about. These are the intuitions that we can't write off through the other two types. Mm-hmm. that have to do with across time and space. Yes. A mother who knows their children are in harm's way or are up to no good, um, and they're on the other side of town or the other side of the planet, right? And uh, every mother you ever ask, you know, knows about this. Um, yes. Or, you know, another example, there's so many here, but um, you start thinking about somebody's name pops into your consciousness mm-hmm. that you haven't thought about in years, you know, a friend from high school or college or something. Right. And you get a phone call from them or a letter shows up in the mail that day or the next day. Yes. So, so these, these types of, now we've actually been able to demonstrate all three types really, but the non-local, especially in a laboratory setting, I won't go into all the gory details is all published in peer reviewed papers for people that want the gory details. But um, basically what we found even surprised us, uh, Dr. Campbell, and where we were, we were doing these are very elaborate, well-controlled studies where we're measuring brain waves and the electrocardiogram and skin conductance and, and other types of physiological measures. If we wanted to really see if we if we could trace throughout the the the, physio, the psychophysiological system what was going on, and what we found was that this, this uh, non-local intuitive information starts in the heart. The heart knows first. Mm-hmm literally sends a different neurological message that we can measure to the brain, and then you get a brain response, and then a body response. So the gut, like the gut feeling or the hair on the back of the neck. But the real sequence is heart, brain, body, and then if we're paying attention to the body, we get the feeling. So intuition is usually the feeling of dread, you know, if it's a bad thing, or the feeling of opportunity that I should, you know, do this. Yes. Um, Whether that's about people or, you know, investments and so on. Yes. And uh, once we had developed these protocols, just a fun story here is I, I got a phone call, this is before Zoom, uh, from the president uh, of the, uh, the Graduate School of Entrepreneurship in, uh, in Australia. And uh, he said, basically, uh, we've been studying, you know, we're a graduate school in entrepreneurship, and we've been studying these characters, he called them, uh, the, of repeat entrepreneurs, you know, these guys that are really good at it time after time. They just have this sixth sense, if you want, about good business opportunities. You know, we've got groups of them at MIT and Cambridge and around the world that we've been studying. And he said the, the most common characteristic of these repeat entrepreneurs, 80% of them was the statistic, rely on their intuition when making their final business decision. Of course, they look at the spreadsheets and all that, but when yes. rubber meets the road, that it's, they really, it's their intuition that they rely on. And she says, can we use your methods to measure these characters? And we'd like to see if we can really measure a difference between these repeat entrepreneurs and, and you know, the risk avoidant types, you know, the accountants and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we did a collaboration with them. And, and sure enough, we were able to, to show that uh, these uh, entrepreneur types that are really good at it do indeed have a, a, a stronger intuitive sense of this non-local intuition in, in these research paradigms. So I don't know if that uh, kind of answers your question a little bit. Well, yes, and it's interesting because I actually know people, well, not 
two people who would read the spreadsheets and go into the data only in order to rapidly dismiss it so it doesn't cut into their intuition time. Um, I think that I wrote at Sheldrake that wrote quite a lot about um, a non-local intuition, right, with the uh, the, the, do- the man leaving dogs. the pub and the dogs, you know, mm-hmm. going crazy at home and so forth, and the phone calls from Australia to London and, and so forth, which I find very interesting. Um, he comes, of course, from a different um, uh, view of consciousness. <laughs> But, but but very interesting. Well, thank you for that because it's always you know one one tries to. I mean, obviously, a physician one has to be, especially practicing physician, one has to be evidence based. But you know what is irrational with more information becomes possible and then plausible. <laughs> it's it's the time you're looking at it, you know. Indeed. So I, I'm very interested in these phenomena, and I think. Um, uh, you know, it puts, uh, when I was at medical school, you know, everything was drug-based for psychiatry. And there were people who were very gifted in psychiatry as students who were advised to go into them. A few of them, um, I'm told after the fact, uh, their objection was there's no longer a ghost in the machine. They wanted more of the sort of non-material stuff. Mm-hmm. And um I can see we moving, there's a definite movement back to that, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, in my view. And I mean, I'm not the best I would agree. Yeah. to, to uh, opine on that, but it's, 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 you know, after 40 years of medicine, I find, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah. Not, not, you know, medicines are appropriate. They've done amazing things as well. So yeah. not to, just to get that out the way. But uh, this is most interesting, and I thank you. And I know my my listeners will be interested in that because this is the juice that that holds it together very often. You know, we as physicians or uh, psychologists, we kind of when we we present usually as we would to colleagues, which is the correct way apparently, but it's also the dry way, whereas people. Listeners, I find want want to see the connections with the everyday and and the the, the the contrast and comparison. Where do you believe this most interesting and powerful discipline or approach to things is? What what would you, well, firstly, what word do you prefer that's most appropriate? Is this a discipline or an approach or a, a study or all three? I suppose it is answering my own question. Uh, well, I'm not uh, trying. To, I would agree it's all three. But what's the what was the the main? Oh question? no, but what, I want to, I want to ask uh, what you believe is the most what you believe is the most interesting um, di- uh, um, direction that this is moving. I mean, the, the global aspect, or or um, I would you, yeah for me for twenty for, thirty years. Yeah, for our, our work and our research, uh, Dr. Campbell, we've spent you know close to thirty years looking at personal coherence and and how we can train you know people uh, through simple techniques and the biofeedback technologies to be to better self regulate. Which right. what I mean by that is it's how we navigate the world with more grace and ease, with yeah. a lot less stress. You know, making you know, um, and, and all all the benefits of our own health and wellness, lowered blood pressure and better hormonal balance and better immunity and a very long list of studies that have now been proven when we, we learn to better self-regulate our inner emotional diet and we, we feel a lot better. 
All right, where we're focused now and have been for the last really couple of years is really on social coherence. In other words, how do we uh, help, um, whether it's a family, a leadership team, a sports team, that doesn't really matter, but groups of people uh, move to a, a more coherent social life and engagement. Um, and that's really fascinating because we're, we're actually seeing that hearts synchronize between individuals in, in relationships and in groups. And that the degree of our physiological synchronization, in other words, when our hearts literally get in sync with one another, that that's directly related to, you know, I can use a science term, pro-social behaviors. Mm-hmm. In other words, we become, we, we listen deeper. Uh, we hear what other people are saying at a deeper level. We become less separative, you know, and more collaborative. Right. Basically, how we get along better cause is, to me right now, that is the most important thing facing society and really the global uh, right. world. Absolutely agreed, yeah. So being good is to be healthy, basically. Yeah, and, and I'm, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm actually thinking past being good in a certain way. Right. Uh, how do we really grow in our own consciousness? Right. Where we become more inclusive in our thinking and our thoughts and our behaviors than self-centered. Um, and I'm talking about at the expense of the self. Uh, but at the same time, there's a way that we can really be in sync with the wholeness um, and more, much more collaborative and rise above our own biases and, and worldviews that are really all, all, almost always hand-me-downs from previous generations. That, uh, and, yes. and consciousness is growing. It's Absolutely. expanding. We are, as, a, as a global society, we are becoming more self-aware, and you especially see that in the younger generations. Um, they're not ready to put up with the same stuff we did. Um, in our well, in our ways no. of thinking and behaviors. And, um, and thank good, God, you know. Yeah, good for them, I was going to say. Dr. McCready, we're rapidly running out of time. Uh, this was an absolutely brilliant experience, um, and I'm sure my listeners, many of most of them, will think the same. Uh, it was uh, an astonishing event for me personally, uh, and I thank you very much, and uh, it was it was great. Well, my, my pleasure, and maybe we'll do it again on a different uh, different aspect I, of one of these topics. I, I, I do hope we will. Uh, I, I certainly look forward to it. Thank you for tuning in to HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time, or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.